You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement material. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. Over the summer, author, activist, and social theorist A.K. Thompson came to Interference Archive to speak about his newest book, Premonitions. In the recording that follows, he draws on his work to explore the relationship between citation and social movements. By the end of the lecture, we gain a new understanding of the political role of archivists. Before we move on to the recording, you should know that Thompson refers to images throughout the lecture. You can find those images in the slides in the show notes below. If you have them available, follow along. So for today's uh, presentation, I want to focus a little bit on the role that historical memory and citation play in the struggle for social change. Um, and this is a theme that features regularly in my writing um, and in my political work. Um, and it's one that I feel brings me into close alignment with the work that's happening here at Interference Archive. Uh, as you may know, Interference Archive really emphasizes that the active use of its collection is, in fact, a mode of preservation. So this is quite different from other archives where you need to touch things with cotton gloves and you need to fill out a form to get it. Here, the idea is that by making use of it, uh, that you're actually actively engaged in a process of preservation through recirculation, through repurposing. <clears throat> so I think that's an important idea. Um, in my own work, and in particular in Premonitions, uh, my most recent book, um, I've adopted a similar approach to these questions. Um, and I'm really interested in how manifestations of what I describe as the culture of revolt uh, can alert us to challenges and opportunities that movements confront. So by looking at the culture of revolt that arises within the context of social movement struggles, um, we see archival traces both of promises and opportunities and also of challenges and that these can be analyzed and that that analysis can become the basis for the further development of strategy. And in pursuing this approach, I've been extremely indebted to the work of Walter Benjamin, who was a <clears throat> German-Jewish uh, Marxist cultural theorist and critic writing at the beginning of the 20th century. Some of you might know this person as Walter Benjamin. We're talking about the same person. Um, I prefer uh, Walter Benjamin, just in the interest of not uh, alienating those who aren't already academics or in the know with, uh, uh, with esoteric cultural theory. Um, <clears throat> now, Benjamin, for most English language readers, is most well known for two books that were published in 1968 and 1978, put out by Schocken Books, uh, called Illuminations and Reflections. So my own book, Premonitions, is uh, both an act of homage and an attempt to extend Benjamin's work. Um, and there's a lot that can be said about Walter Benjamin and his contribution to social theory and social struggle. <clears throat> So much so that by the 1980s, um, an annotated bibliography of secondary sources on Benjamin's work was already well over 200 pages long. Uh, but as his friend and French biographer Pierre Messac pointed out, most of that secondary literature never really moved beyond the point of commentary or 
maybe like exegetical reading or criticism. Um, and in many ways, this uh, was inevitable, but it's also a kind of distortion of or an active disservice of the contribution that Benjamin himself was making. <clears throat> um, so one of the things that I try to do to bring Walter Benjamin back within the field of social and political struggle is to envision my project as one of operationalizing his work. Um, and in a way, this is just consistent with what Walter Benjamin said should be done of all culture, of all material artifacts. So in one note that he filed in uh, the section of an ongoing research project on the Paris Arcades that was supposed to become his life's work, but remained incomplete in his lifetime, in the section devoted to methodological considerations, he wrote, I shall purloin no valuables, appropriate no ingenious formulations, but the rags, the refuse. These I will not inventory, but allow in the only way possible to come into their own by making use of them. So if we think about this, we can begin to detect a strong overlap between the guiding principles of Benjamin's approach, uh, the mission of interference archive, with respect to the cultural artifacts that are accumulated here, um, and also to the manner in which we might engage in, <clears throat> in an exchange with both Benjamin's work and also with the cultural ephemera or the rags and refuse that we find in an archive like this one. In order to begin doing that, I think we need to ask um, what Benjamin might mean by saying uh, that the way to engage with an, an art with an artifact is by making use of it. What does it mean to make use of it? Um, and I think in order to answer this question, it's necessary to know a little bit about how he understood the process of social change. According to Benjamin, the past was accessed in everyday life through recollections that people had that were both conscious and unconscious of the past, of its unfulfilled promise, of the social utopia that they associated with it, um, and that that recollection and that social utopia became embedded within the artifacts of material culture with which we find ourselves surrounded. So in an essay called Paris Capital of the 19th Century, which was sort of an expose for the arcades project that he was unable to finish. Um, he summarized this idea by saying, in the dream in which before the eyes of each epoch, that which is to follow appears in images, the latter appears wedded to elements from prehistory, that is, of a classless society. Intimations of this deposited in the unconscious of the collective mingle with the new to produce the utopia that has left its traces in thousands of configurations of life, from permanent buildings to fleeting fashions. So we're going to follow Benjamin and follow this idea to its logical conclusion. I think we can envision that the role of the researcher then is to trace out the recursive reiterations of the past as it's invoked through the struggle for social change, as it manifests itself in the present in material culture. And there are a few things to note here. The first is that analytically, the concept of archive implied here is extremely expansive, that it far exceeds the limited, um, deliberate kind of collecting that happens in interference archive. It takes the material 
of history itself to be tantamount to the archive. Um, and in his essay on the concept of history, which was the last thing he wrote, he makes this idea explicit. He says, only for a redeemed mankind does the fullness of the past become citable in all of its moments. Uh, so history itself is here perceived as an archive. The second important thing to note here is that strategically, citations can activate historical memory and prompt people to take action to transform the world by envisioning that they are realizing the unfulfilled promise of the past. So the active work of citation, of drawing in an artifact from the archive and remobilizing it within the context of the present, alerts people to those promises that are present within historical memory, but not necessarily conscious. Um, so I want to propose that this is a skill that can be learned, um, and that as a result of it, that archivists and archival projects like Interference Archive are exceptionally well positioned to conduct experiments in this domain. Um, and that the contribution strategically to movement development can be quite significant. Um, so in order to begin experimenting with how we might cultivate this skill, I want to uh, <clears throat> introduce some examples that we could look at of the ways that history ends up manifesting itself in everyday culture through the process of citation in the way that Benjamin described. Um, and I chose these examples primarily uh, with the hope that they would be familiar to most of you, uh, so that what we're looking at is more like the, the process rather than the weirdness of the citations themselves. So uh, this is the AT&T building. Uh, you might know it. Um, <clears throat> built on Madison Avenue, it was erected in the mid-1980s. Um, and so in the midst of the modernist conceits of architecture at that time, the AT&T building was a novelty because it reintroduced these architectural elements from <clears throat> uh, Greco-Roman architecture, uh, from classical antiquity. Why is this happening? It's such a strange moment in the development of postmodern architecture. I think something can be understood of this process if we recall that uh, as far as AT&T the company is concerned, its mission is to, quote, be a modern media company whose mission is to inspire human progress, to lead the next revolution in technology, media, and telecommunications. So they're talking in, in the context of revolutionary change. They're stuck within the modernist moment, and the vision of the social utopia finds its uh, point of contact with mythological recollections of classical antiquity where societies were creating like the foundation for Western civilization or, or so the myth goes. Um, and so the invocation of the old is used to prompt uh, the development of the new and is fully in keeping with the, uh, the presumptions that Benjamin felt were operating within social reality. Um, more generally. Here's another example. On the left is a photo of the Paris Arcades, a contemporary photo, um, and these were the arcades that Benjamin was especially interested in analyzing. Uh, he thought that like within uh, these streets enclosed beneath glass roofs, the lines between interior and exterior, between 
uh, private domestic life and public life between fantasy and commerce begin to be, become blurred in ways that were really revelatory with respect to the importance of indeterminacy and dreams to capitalist progress, to capitalist development. On the right side, this is a photo from the Eaton Centre, uh, which is in downtown Toronto. It was also built in the mid-80s, um, and it actively works with citations of anachronistic motifs drawn directly from the arcades. Um, so you have to remember that in the mid-80s, the shopping mall was a predominantly suburban phenomenon. Um, and here with the Eaton Center, we see the shopping mall being reconfigured as an arcade, which was the shopping mall, mall's precursor. And the all of the storefronts um, are designed to look like part of an enclosed streetscape. Uh, so the citation here is... Uh, is quite explicit, but it's important to note that the citation only really becomes visible if we're familiar with the archival reference. And so the work of the archivist in, able, in order to be able to trace these citations becomes paramount. Um, at its best, this process can force two discontinuous moments into relationship and allow us to begin perceiving continuities and ruptures that shape the present and that can alert us to desires and opportunities within the present. Um, so let's look at some more examples drawn from visual culture, less based on permanent buildings. So here on the left, we have uh, Edvard Munch's famous uh, image, The Scream, which was produced at the turn of the century and is now among one of the most cited works in art history. Um, and on the right uh, is the poster advertising the film Home Alone, which came out at the end of the 20th century and broke all kinds of box office records. Now, following Marx, we might say that the first iteration marks the moment of tragedy and then the second is the, the moment of farce. Um, but I think the correspondence alerts us to more than that. Um, it might alert us to the fact that Monk's tragedy actually has echoes and reiterations in the present and that these were not eclipsed by capitalist development. And instead, what we see is that tragedy being subsumed in cinematic form through forms of catharsis and the management of affect. So rather than being demoralized by like the psychological crises caused by capitalism, we're now enjoined to laugh about it. The examples become more political as well. So here on the left is uh, Shepard Ferry's famous Andre the Giant slash Obey image, which became ubiquitous, uh, especially through stickers and posters throughout the 1990s. And on the right, we have the poster he made for Obama's presidential campaign in 2008. Uh, and we can see the kind of compositional echo between these two images, uh, with the latter citing, at least obliquely, the former. If we look at these two images together, <clears throat> I think we can begin to see a number of things, but one that really strikes me is the ambivalence of hope in Obama. If you think back to the 2008 campaign, when hope was mobilized, it was mobilized primarily as a noun. It was the thing describing what Obama was, or the thing describing what Obama would bring. But I think when we begin to view the second iteration as a citation, or a recursive reiteration of 
the ubiquitous obey, we begin to see hope as a verb. And in that moment, we begin to detect all of the ways in which neoliberalism has operated on the basis of the incitement to hope as a strategy for managing affect under conditions of increasingly tense social contradictions um, and people living lives under increasing duress. More examples of people riffing on uh, the significance of Shepard Ferry's work in this tweet, which circulated um, a few months ago, and that was uh, based on images that he produced in the context of the beginning of the resistance against Trump. Um, and so in constellating these images and circulating them as a tweet, um, and then, you know, as a screenshot that ended up circulating on social media, um, we begin to see how people have an intuitive awareness of the importance of correspondences, both in terms of making sense of social and historical reality, but also as a way of connecting utopian images to future possibilities, where images become kind of promissory notes that find their concretion through practical activity. In this way, we can say that movements have often expressed an awareness of the power of historical citations um, and that these citations can help to clarify aims and mobilize constituencies to produce change in the future. But the left isn't the only social and political force engaging in this kind of work. As we saw in August of 2017, the far right gravitated toward the statue of General Lee in Charlottesville to define its mission in truly historical terms. Um, and so the action was framed as an act of preservation, an act of archival work in a way. Um, and yet the purpose of the mobilization was also envisioned as one of like completing an unfulfilled project that becomes canonically associated with the figure of General Lee. On the left, we see similar kinds of citations and evocations happening. Um, so the desire to celebrate uh, figures like the activist Brie Newsom uh, prompted a series of invocations of Wonder Woman, like this one by Rebecca Cohen, which was produced almost immediately after Newsom's uh, flagpole ascent and her pulling down of the Confederate flag. It's interesting because at the moment, the anti-fascist backstory to Wonder Woman as a character uh, mostly went unmentioned. The citation was prim primarily one of like powerful womanhood. But the anti-fascist backstory implicit in the Wonder Woman character was implicitly present and became explicit in the 2017 cinematic releases where Wonder Woman featured as an important character. In a way, the importance of the citation or the fullness of its content became realized through its subsequent reiterations. And in many ways, images like uh, Rebecca Cohen's uh, Brie Newsome Wonder Woman image provided a template for that. We can see citations like this happening also in the development of the uh, woman-led resistance to the Trump regime. So with the release of the Star Wars film The Force Awakens in 2015, recollections of the figure Princess Leia or General Leia were activated and citations were used uh, as reference points for the developing movement. 
Um, and this interpretation from 2015 by the artist Julian Cohen provided a template. Uh, this image circulated widely over social media as a kind of meme. So these examples are quite eclectic and they're drawn from movement culture, from popular culture. They can seem ephemeral, they can see, seem permanent. What sense are we to make of this? How are we supposed to interpret this? I think for me, I became really interested in these questions when I realized how frequently appearances of citations uh, showed up in movement culture. The moment when this became really explicit for me was when I began noticing the the regularity with which citations from the 19th century Romantic archive ended up appearing in the images used by global justice struggles at the beginning of the 21st century. And so in my book, I do an analysis of one of these. <clears throat> this image by Eric Drucker was one of the one of the first images that alerted me to the importance of tracking citations and figuring out the work that they could do. And this is one of the cases that I look at in premonitions. Um, so this image uh, was ubiquitous at the turn of the century, and it actively featured in uh, promotional material that the Direct Action Network put out to mobilize people uh, for protests against the IMF and World Bank in Washington, D.C. in 2000. Now, for people who have a uh, background in art history, one of the things that's most notable about this image is how it's a direct citation of Goya's famous massacre of the 3rd of May. And so this is an image of the Napoleonic army slaughtering anarchists in Spain. So it's, it's a strange citation when you're thinking of like, how are you supposed to mobilize people to protest um, if the image you're giving them is like a, an, in, an image of slaughter? It might be an accusatory painting, but they're still losing. They're losing in this moment. So what's going on? I think it becomes a little more clear when we recall that the Drucker image is not only Goya. There's another citation that's overlaid on top of it, that it's a composite of two discrete citations. And the other citation, along with the Goya, is the biblical citation of um, Joshua's assault on Jericho, where if you remember your Old Testament, this is where faith brings the chosen people through like their moment of struggle that they just march around the city blasting trumpets and the walls crumble. So you have an image of imminent slaughter and an image of victory through faith, despite apparent powerlessness, collapsed into each other in a kind of visual time fold. And what's interesting is that even if the citations even if the source material goes unrecognized, the practical effect of it is to, to connect with a sense in what Benjamin would describe as the unconscious of the collective, that struggle and victory are somehow already fused. And if you were involved in struggle at that moment, you might recall that people said, you know, to struggle is already to have won. And this was an incredibly powerful way of thinking, especially for 
a cohort of activists who were often middle class and didn't have a lot of experience with confrontation, but then began engaging in extremely confrontational protests. Thinking about all these examples together, we can see how Benjamin's analysis of historical memory citation in the archive could allow us to envision an important strategic role for archivists in movements to alert us to these citations. And familiarity with the archive's content makes this work easier. It allows us to engage in active processes of experimentation with citation. It allows us to engage in processes of trying to find correspondences that might not otherwise be visible. But I want to propose that while familiarity with the archive is very useful in this regard, that we're aided in a way by the structure of time itself. Now, what do I mean by that? I want to propose that under capitalism, we live within two interrelated but distinct and nearly antithetical regimes of time. The first we can think of as clock time. Clock time is associated with what Benjamin described as the homogenous empty time of capitalist social relations associated with the idea of progress. But along with clock time, we exist within the regime of calendar time. Calendar time predates capitalism, but continues to exist within it. And unlike clock time, calendar time stimulates recollections and prompts a kind of temporal folding. Calendar time deposits us before familiar moments, though the conditions that mark the encounter change each time. And one simple example of that would just be holidays, you know, that every year at this time, this holiday happens. And every year you notice that your relationship with your family has changed, maybe. But you get to compare them because it's the same moment, even though it's different. I think because of this feature of calendar time, we can think of it as stimulating dialectical thinking and also stimulating an awareness of the possibility for change. And while calendar time is always imperiled by the official story of progress, it persists. But as Benjamin argued um, in his essay on the concept of history, he said, even the dead are not safe from the enemy if he wins, and this enemy has not ceased to be victorious. So along with holidays, we can think of anniversaries as another example of calendrical consciousness, where we recall, oh, on this date... So many years ago, this thing happened, and through the recollection, we bring it into the present, and it can be a disruptive, illuminating force, or it can be subsumed within the story of progress. So to think about how this is happening right now, I think it suffices to recall that like, we're sitting in the middle of New York City in the summer of 2019, and we're all celebrating, in one way or another, the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion. This is incredibly important to radicals, but it's incredibly important to the state as well. And so there's a fight over what this story is going to be. Is it going to activate resistance through the temporal folding of calendrical consciousness, or is it going to be folded into the official story of progress? Is it just going to be like one moment in the empty homogenous time that Benjamin warned us against? I think another important anniversary that's happening this year, another important reference point that we might think about when talking about calendrical consciousness is 
that in November of 1999, we saw successful protests against the World Trade Organization in Seattle. And so the 20th anniversary of that struggle will be taking place in November. And this snapshot uh, is one of the most enigmatic archival uh, residues, I guess, of that struggle. This was an image that circulated widely over the internet and was reprinted in numerous publications immediately following the protests in Seattle. And it was reactivated by a group called Turbulence in the lead up to protests against the Group of Eight in Germany in 2007. I think the composition is totally enigmatic. It's affirming in a way the declaration we are winning it's like wish fulfillment, but it also had a concrete reference point. The meeting of the World Trade Organization was actually effectively shut down. And yet there are no victorious actors in this image. All there are are cops. So we're left with this like victory, yes, but how and at what cost? What does victory require? I think this kind of composition, uh, which is sort of like an accidental montage of like really contradictory elements has the attributes of what Benjamin referred to as a dialectical image, an image that has the power to provoke reckoning. And so I'm really interested in thinking about what such an image drawn from the archive might allow us to do in a moment such as the present, where, of course, since Seattle, movements have continued to be interested in winning, continue to be interested in victory. And yet the meaning of that concept has often slid. You'll recall that despite its initial ambitions, the common sense of the Occupy movement was that its victory amounted to, quote, changing the conversation, which is no doubt important to do, but is quite distinct from, like, shutting down Wall Street. Following from that, one of the developments coming out of Occupy Wall Street was the emergence of left Democrats who picked up the language of Occupy uh, and effectively used it to win electoral campaigns. So some people thought that was winning. I think we're now at this moment where the conception of victory has become concrete again, like it was in Seattle, but it's become much more circumscribed. So if you think about the resistance to the rise of street-level Nazi violence, winning means no platforming Milo, shutting them down or kicking them off the streets. And this is incredibly important. And yet the broader vision of what victory might mean that was present at a moment like Seattle has been eclipsed. So you'll recall that this we are winning coincided with the subsequent declaration, another world is possible, that it coincided with a utopian vision. I want to propose that all of these things are metonymically encapsulated in an image like this, and that through active archival citation, the discrepancy and the dialogue between this past iteration of a vision of victory and our present deliberations can become incredibly politically important. I think for this reason, we can envision that the role of archives 
and archivists in political struggle is not merely analytic, that it's also strategic, and that we can commit ourselves to a process of discovering these citations, experimenting with their deployment in the interest of pushing the movements in which we're part to begin to imagine our project as one of realizing the unfulfilled promise of the past, of completing these struggles. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered, and we rely on donations to keep us up and running. To support what we do, go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. A special thanks to A.K. Thompson for letting us publish this recording and for providing the accompanying slides. You can find his newest book, Premonitions, at akpress.org. Thanks for listening. 